Father, we love you very much. I thank you for the opportunity already for us to gather together as one body, as a family of believers who love you and love each other, and to be able to sing praises to your glorious name, to be able to bring you honor, to ascribe glory to you, for you are worthy. And so I ask now as we get into your word that you would meet us here, that you would open our hearts, soften our hearts, that we would hear from your Holy Spirit through your inspired word, and that you would bless us, God, meet us where we are at. If we need to be corrected or convicted, please do that. If we need to be encouraged, instructed, please do that. We all want to learn of you and grow in our knowledge of you, Lord. And we want to love you more and serve you more and obey you more and follow you in a greater way. And so please, Lord, change us from the inside out as we behold your glory and your living word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Hallelujah. Well, as I have previously stated on many, uh, many weeks now, we are at the last few hours before Jesus is to be crucified, the night before he is to be crucified, and he is sharing these very intimate moments and hours with his disciples in what we call the upper room discourse. Now, Jesus has told his disciples that he's going away, and where he is going, they cannot follow because he's going to the cross. They certainly won't follow him there. They will suffer, and many of them will die of persecution for their testimony, but that is, it's not their time right now. And then, of course, Jesus is going to go to the Father, and it's not yet their time. And they don't understand any of this, but they are clearly perplexed. They are distraught at the idea that Jesus is going away. They're not quite sure where he's going, and they don't, they're not going to be able to follow him. Now, they kind of gave up everything to follow Jesus. They've lived with him for like three years. They had very real expectations of how that was all going to pan out. And now, all of a sudden, it seems like it's coming to naught. It's just going to fall apart, and Jesus is gone, and now what? And so they're very distraught. And Jesus comforts them with many promises. Jesus seeks to lift their countenance and encourage them with many promises. And that's really kind of what we see in these couple of chapters here. And that's why we've been talking about hope, because Jesus comforts them with hope in the midst of their distress and anxiety. Jesus comforts them with the fact that he's going to the Father, and that means something very significant. And we need to keep that in our minds as we walk through these verses here that the promises that he, make, he makes to them really ties into the fact that Jesus is going away to the Father. And these are some realities that belong to them after Jesus is gone. And they belong to us as well. Promises are important for Christians. Promises are important in general. Sometimes it's just what keeps us going in life. We have the hope of something. There's something that we are looking to. There's something that we are believing in. There's something that we're clinging to just to keep us going. Now, that's true in life, and a lot of people live their lives like that. They're hoping for, believing in a promotion or a relationship or a degree or some kind of goal, something that they are striving for, seeking to live for, and they want to aspire to something. And so we understand what that is, but for the Christian, it's so much greater. 
We have eternal promises. See, those kinds of things, you may or may not achieve them, and they definitely won't really satisfy or fulfill you in this life. They're all very temporal. But we have something that is so much greater, so much more sure, so much more powerful. We have the promises of God. Promises for us here in this life and in that to come. Amen? And so we would do well to know the promises of God and to look to the promises, to cling to them, to believe them. Second Peter chapter 1, he says this in verse 3, Jesus, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue, verse 4, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. We have everything that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus, and through Him we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that give us hope in this life and cause us to uh, persevere and to be of good courage. Amen? So praise God for His promises, and we find hope in the promises of Jesus, hope after Jesus' departure. And so that's really where we're going in the message today. And so as we get into the text, point number one, the foundation of Jesus' promises. There is a foundation here. It is who He is and what He has done. Who Jesus is and what He has done. And we'll, we'll kind of, I'll explain that as we go. So look at verse 10 with me. Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Jesus, if you'll recall, is responding to Philip's request. Remember last week we were looking at that? And uh, Philip said, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that's enough. Just show us the Father. We want to see Him, and then we'll, we'll be good. We'll, we'll believe. We'll be, we'll be satisfied. We will rest assured. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and still you, haven't, you don't know me? That's, a, that's an interesting response, isn't it? Jesus presses the point with a question. Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is assuring Philip that he and the Father are one. Now, this boggles our minds as it should we cannot match intellect with God, and we can't know everything there is to know about God. He's infinite. He is lofty. He is majestic. He is high and lifted up. He's eternal. And uh, it's just more than our feeble, little finite brains can compute. But He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we sang earlier, our God is triune. Three distinct persons, yet one God. Same in essence, in glory, in worth, in attributes, yet distinctly three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus has always existed from eternity past with the Father in perfect unity, love, glory, and peace, and satisfaction. And Jesus, on some level, is trying to communicate this 
to his disciples. He's trying to help them understand a little bit about who he is, that he could make such claims as these. He says that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's essentially stating his authority to say the kinds of things that he's saying and that he's going to say. Jesus said that he never acted independent of the Father, that everything Jesus said and did was by the will and authority and power of the Father. And Jesus appeals to his own works as a testimony to that. To, to verify, to validate everything that he has said. Remember Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God because nobody can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And that's essentially what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, guys, I am making some very astounding promises to you, and I want you to understand that I have full authority to say these things, and they are true because I am one with the Father I never speak a word that is contrary to the Father. Everything that I say has been validated by the Father because of the works, because of the very things that I have done. So because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, we can believe what Jesus says. Amen? We can believe that. We can take that to the bank. And that's just the thing. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. I know that we have all been given promises by people, and those promises weren't kept. And sometimes people, it's not because they didn't want to. They, maybe they even really tried, but they promised more than they could actually fulfill, more than they could actually do. And there are times where, of course, people have made empty promises that they had no intentions of keeping. But when our God makes promises, He intends on keeping them. He does keep them. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. He has absolutely all the ability to fulfill them, and He does. All God's promises are what? Yes and amen. Yes and amen. All of God's promises. Not one will fall to the ground. Not one word that God has spoken will fall to the ground. It will be fulfilled. Take it to the bank, amen? Now, this is something that the writer of Hebrews appeals to, this very same line of reasoning. Let me read this to us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Now, I, I apologize, this is wordy, and, it, and it, uh, you know, it needs a little bit of explaining, so I will do my best. God made a promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. And when God did that, he swore by his own name. He made an oath on his own name. That's kind of odd to us because we never do that. We always swear by something else, right? And so that's kind of the backdrop for this. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, uh, obtained the promise. Abraham got the promise that God made to him. He waited patiently. He waited for a long time. He had some failures along the way. But God is faithful. God doesn't fail. And God made good on His promise to Abraham. 
I think that kind of says it right there. I'll, uh, I'll just stop right there with that cross-reference. And I love Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold on to, let us resolve to be unmoved, unshakable in our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. Jesus is faithful. Jesus has proven that he is faithful. He is able because of who he is and what he has done. Jesus came to this earth and lived a life of perfection. I mean, that in and of itself is so amazing. Who, no, no raise of hands here because we already all know none of us are perfect, right? Isn't that the first thing that we, I'm sorry I'm not perfect, right? Because we, we, we know we're not perfect, all right? There was one, one who was perfect, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, He came to this earth, and He lived a life of perf perfect obedience to God's law in every single way. Now, He was tempted, confronted with sin, yet He never sinned. He was tempted, yet never sinned. And then, He died a sinner's death. He died a rebel's death, and He did it for us. That's a substitutionary uh, death. He took our penalty. He took our punishment. He took our payment in our stead. And then he rose again from the grave. He rose again from the grave. And so Jesus said that he was going to do that. And then he did it. And so those works right there prove that he is who he said that he was. Because if he were anything less, if he had died in his sin then he would have remained dead. He would have remained in the grave. But he really was who he said that he was. He really was the innocent, holy Son of God, and he really did rise from the grave, proving that he was who he said he was, and we can take his promises to the bank. Amen? Amen. We can have hope in his validity and his faithfulness and who he is and what he has done. And you know what? When we remember the works that Jesus has done... In our own lives, man, that brings us confidence, doesn't it? And we need to do that. Has he not demonstrated his faithfulness and his love and his care in your life? He has. And you know he has. If you know Jesus, you know that. We can't forget those things. How easily do we forget? We're not meant to forget. We're meant to remember, to recall to our minds his goodness, his faithfulness, his mighty works in our lives in time of need. And that bolsters our faith. Not least of which in our own salvation. He saved us. He saved us. He changed us from the inside out. Jesus continues to work in our lives. He continues to show himself faithful. He continues to strengthen our faith. We look at the work that Jesus is doing in the lives of those around us. That's why it's so important to be in community. That's why it's important to be around other believers as you see what God is doing in their lives. As they testify to the faithfulness and the goodness of God, it strengthens our faith. Amen?
And so we must look to who Jesus is and what He has done as the foundation for His promise, because a promise is only as good as the one who makes it, and He who promised is faithful. Amen? All right. Well, that brings us to the next part of our message. And now we're going to look at three promises that Jesus gives to those who believe. Three promises that Jesus gives to those who believe. The third one I'm just going to hit on a little bit today in closing, and we'll come back and look at that with more detail next week. But three promises that the faithful Son of God gives, and this I think is especially true for the disciples after Jesus' departure. This will bring much encouragement and hope to them. And so the first promise is a promise of being effective in their service to Him and being fruitful and useful. Those are important words to the Christian. That's what we desire, is it not? We want to be effective. We want to live lives that are fruitful and useful to God. And so Jesus makes this promise. He says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, that is a heavy verse. And there is a lot of debate on what this verse even means. Because on the the face of it, it certainly sounds like Jesus is saying anyone who believes in him, they're going to do the same kinds of miracles that he did, even greater miracles, right? That's what it sounds like. And there are some people who hold that interpretation, Uh, somehow they think that they're doing miracles or they're at least trying to convince other people that they're doing all kinds of, you know, crazy miracles. Um, That's for a different day. That's another subject. But uh, I think most of us would not interpret it this way. Um, I think some might say, well, this was just for the apostles because they did many miracles, right? Right? But Jesus says that it's whoever who believes in him. So it extends beyond the apostles. And the reality is the apostles did many mighty works and miracles, but really they still didn't do anything in comparison to what Jesus did. Uh, they didn't calm storms. They didn't walk on water. They didn't multiply uh, you know, bread and fish and feed thousands and thousands of people. Believe me, they did some extraordinary things. Miraculous things were done through them. But there appears to be something else happening here, something else that Jesus is getting at. And I think part of it could be in this, in this phrase, because I'm going to the Father. Now, Jesus connects going to the Father with sending the Holy Spirit, sending the Holy Spirit. And so um, I think the common understanding of this verse is Jesus is talking about salvation, the miracle of salvation. When Jesus returns to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come and people who believe in Jesus will be born again and they will be radically transformed, snatched from the pit of hell and changed from the inside out, transformed from death to life, regenerated, right? Now, there's no greater miracle than that. There is no greater miracle in the world than that. And so the idea of greater works than these would probably be greater in uh, scope, meaning it's going to be worldwide. It's not just going to be happening right there in Jerusalem. Greater works, these works are going to be happening all around the world and in every generation. 
and the nature of the miracle. It's not just going to be stretching out a withered hand or healing someone who was blind or healing someone from leprosy because the thing about those folks is those miracles are astounding, but that does nothing for their eternal souls. And so you remember the guy in John 5 at the pool of Bethesda? He wanted to get in the water, but he couldn't, and Jesus healed him. And then the Pharisees were like, hey, you know, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? And he was like, I was healed. They were like, who did it? I don't know. Then Jesus reveals himself to the guy, and what does the guy do? He goes and snitches on Jesus. He runs back to the Pharisees, and he was like, Jesus did it. And I'm just like, man, how in the world could you do that? And so that just goes to show this guy had been lame for like 38 years. Jesus heals him, and then he goes and and tattles on Jesus. And so a person can experience an amazing miracle and not be changed. And so I I really believe that's what Jesus is getting at here, because he's going to go to the Father, the Holy Spirit is going to come, And people, when they believe in Jesus, they're going to be transformed from the inside out. And there is no greater miracle than that. In fact, Luke tells us in chapter 15, all of heaven rejoices when a sinner finds salvation. The angels erupt in praise when a lost and dead sinner is raised to life. And so it seems to me that that is the greater work. Titus chapter 3, I quote this verse a lot, but I just feel like it, it, it explains all of this very concisely in these few verses. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, and the idea of foolish is uh, re- rejecting God, uh, unbelief in God. He says that we were disobedient, we were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. So we were malicious, we were envious, we wanted what other people had and didn't want people to have what they had, hated by others and hating one another. That really describes the heart, the human heart, apart from Christ in in our unregenerate form. Whether we want to believe that or or even know that, that describes us well. He says, however, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we were lost. We were dead. We were blind. We were children of Satan, children of wrath, as it were. And God loved us and poured out His Holy Spirit upon us and changed us, saved us radically, eternally from the inside out. And if that is true of you, if you know Jesus Christ, you have personally experienced the greatest miracle that there can be. You've experienced it. You have experienced a miracle. Don't forget that. I hope you know that. And God uses us in that same process. You know, Peter, after he received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, preached and 3,000 people were saved that day. That is a greater work. That is a greater work than what Jesus did. Jesus told them that they would do greater works. This was a miracle of salvation that would be worldwide and multi-generational. And this promise extends to us. And the Lord uses us 
in other people's lives. The Lord uses us to share our faith, to be a witness to His goodness and His grace, His faithfulness, to proclaim the message of God's truth to others, to invite people to church, to home groups, to Bible studies, to pray for people at work. God will use you. God uses you. Will you let Him? Will you give yourself to Him to be useful, to be used? Because He says here that you can and will if you believe in Him. He will make you useful, fit for the Master's purposes. Amen? And I know that that's our desire, and He says that we will do greater works. And, I, you know, that, and that's what it is, folks. It's, it's people. It's people. You're a person, right? You have a heart. You have feelings. You have hurts. You have regrets. And God in His loving kindness reached down into your life and healed you, changed you, saved you. And there are people around you who have the same need, and God intends to use you to help them, just like you were helped by somebody else, and they were helped by somebody else, and on and on. That has gone for 2,000 years now. Since Jesus made this promise to the disciples. And so we've got to, we have to get over ourselves and get in people's lives. We have to be willing to have friendships, relationships, to go to church more than just Sunday morning, get in right before or during worship and get out as soon as the pastor says amen, you know. Let's pray, I open up my eyes, and half the people are already gone and out the, out the parking lot. Like, don't do that, right? Like, we have to get to know each other so that we can be a blessing to one another, so that we can try to meet the needs of one another and serve one another and bless and love and pray for one another. It's people business. It's people work. And that's where God wants to use us, and He will use us. Well, that brings us to the next the next promise is the promise of answered prayer. The promise of answered prayer. Now, Jesus had been with them. Jesus was able to speak to their needs and issues right there on the spot. But now Jesus is going to be gone. And they're probably thinking, what now? Jesus is gone. All hope is lost. We're without help. Jesus says, you can pray. You can pray, and I will answer you. So verse 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, again, this is another interesting verse that people can really run with and go crazy. And at first glance, it sounds like a blank check kind of promise. Just ask anything, anything, and I'll do it. Man, that sounds great. You know, and there are some people, a lot of people, in fact, who treat God that way. God is, that's a very convenient situation for them. God exists to do my bidding. God exists to answer all of my wants and desires. Um, and we can treat God like that's all that He is. And if maybe He doesn't answer our prayer the way we want Him to, then how dare you, God, right? And so we have to watch that. But again, First, consider the audience. Who is Jesus talking to? Jesus is talking to disciples. Disciples are students and learners 
who intend to follow and obey, obey and imitate their teacher. And so they're going to pray the way that their master prays. So you're going to keep that in mind first and foremost. And note that Jesus said that you have to ask in his name. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That's like saying according to the will and nature of, right? We know different people have different wills and characteristics and natures. You might see somebody who's a very soft-spoken person one day just out of nowhere lose their temper and go off on somebody, and you're taken back by that because you're like, wow, that was very out of character for them. That, that was very inconsistent from what I have known of them, right? Well, we know the will and the nature and the character of Jesus. He's always going to be consistent with it, and it's our aim to try to pray within the confines of that, the parameters of what we know is pleasing to Jesus in His name. You follow? Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay. The idea is simply this, to pray in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and in a way that accords with His will. There are times where we don't know what His will is. There are times when we can ask for something that is not bad, uh, and, but we don't know what His will is, and so we just, the Bible says you have not because you ask not, so we ask. And we have to accept whatever His answer is, whether it's what we would like or not. I think that we're helped when we look at the prayers in the Bible, when we look at the kinds of prayers that are prayed in the Bible, because this is, these men are moved by the Holy Spirit, right? They're moved along by the Holy Spirit, and what we have is Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. And so this is the kind of prayer that the Holy Spirit would have us pray. Does that make sense? And so let's look at the prayers of Scripture. Colossians 1, verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. How did he pray? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So to be filled with the wisdom of God, to be filled with his knowledge, that's a good prayer. To walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. To want to live lives that are consistent with our confession, you know, that are consistent with the gospel, that are consistent with the character of our Lord. God, help me. Help me to, be, uh, to walk a worthy life, to be fully pleasing to you. He goes on to say, bearing much fruit bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How often do we pray prayers like that for others and for ourselves? Now, I know at times we'll try to pray ourselves out of difficulties, and I'm not saying that that is wrong. I'm not. I know that I do it. We all do it. I pray for other people that God would relieve them and that um, they would, you know, whatever suffering they're going through, they could be you know, released from that. But I think that there's also something to praying these kinds of things in the midst of it. In the midst of the suffering, in the midst of whatever it is we're going through, to be able to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, to be able to be fruitful in it. 
to increase in the knowledge of the Lord. God, what would you have me to learn about you in this? God, help me to be fruitful. Help me to grow through this. Help me to live a life that is pleasing to you in this. Does that make sense? I think that's a spiritually mature prayer. I have a, um, a brother, um, a Christian brother, pastor, who uh, is from another country, and he tries to go on vacation each year, especially for his wife's sake. It's very helpful for her that they can do this. And uh, it didn't look like he was going to be able to go this year. And so he asked for prayer, and my assumption was pray that they would get the finances that they need to be able to go on this trip. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that wasn't his prayer request. His prayer request was pray that we'll be content with whether or not the Lord allows us to go. We'll be satisfied to stay and not go, or we'll be excited and satisfied to go. But either way, we're content. Uh, that's an awesome prayer. That is a spiritually mature prayer. I think that is a praying in the will and nature of Jesus kind of prayer. Amen? When we pray like that, we have confidence that He'll answer our prayers. And of course, I just want to look at one last verse, and then we'll, uh, we'll kind of wrap things up. I'm not going to make it to the third point today. The Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And Jesus gave them an example of how to pray, a model. So let us just consider this. Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 6, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And they have their reward already. So when we pray, we're not praying so that we can be seen or so that people can be so impressed with our eloquence or our many words. We're praying in sincerity, praying to the Lord. So if you struggle to pray, if you're fearful to pray because you think that you might not sound you know, good, you are right where you need to be. The Lord is pleased with that. So pray. You know, If you're like, man, I can't wait to pray because they are about to... I'm about to preach a three-point sermon. I'm about to come with it. And, you know, then that's bad. Don't, don't do that, right? And so Jesus first says, don't pray to be seen. Pray to be heard by God. Verse 6, he says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So it's not just meaningless repetition. Don't just take a phrase and say it over and over and over and over and somehow think that because you said it 75 times, that will absolve you of your sin or you'll get you know, favor with God. It doesn't work that way. Jesus said, instead, pray like this, our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. So start by acknowledging God as your Father. If you are in Christ, God is your Father, and you can come to Him like that. You're praying to your Father. That's where your confidence lies. That's where your hope lies. Your Father has invited you into His presence to come and to make your request known. Amen? Father, I come to you. And it also, hallowed be your name. Come with respect. Come with reverence. Come with worship. Don't just come in and lay down your prayer request and move on. 
Take some time. Acknowledge God's goodness. Thank, thank Him for who He is and what He has done. Praise Him a little bit. Amen? Praise your Father. Then it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I am starting by acknowledging that my will might conflict with your will, God, and if so, your will be done always. Your will be done. Help me really to pray in accordance with your will, and if I'm praying outside of that, forgive me and your will be accomplished, right? That's a, that's a, a praying in the name of Jesus kind of prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. There's nothing wrong with praying for provision. We're invited to do that. What, that. what that says is, I don't have it in and of myself, Lord. You have you have all provision. You have all means. I do not, and I'm coming to you in humble dependence. I depend on you, Father, even for my daily sustenance. I depend upon you, even for the next breath that I'm about to take. I depend upon you, Father. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others their debts. Praying for a heart of forgiveness. Confessing our sins to the Lord. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in the same way, there's an expectation that we who have been forgiven much, we who have been loved much, we ought to do the same. We have to forgive we have to love. And oftentimes we need to, in our prayers, ask God for the grace to have a forgiving heart. Ask God for the grace to be forgiving. That is a praying in the name of Jesus kind of prayer. And then he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Guard, guard your heart. Guard my heart, my heart, Lord. Deliver me. Protect me. Help me not to fall into temptation. Right? Those, that, these are the kinds of things, and this isn't a prayer that's made to just be recited over and over and over. You understand that, right? This is a model that is to be broken down just like I did, and you can pray those kinds of things, but make it personal to yourself with your own fears, your own struggles, your own needs, your own vocabulary, your own way that you go about praising and worshiping God. In the name of, praying in the name of is like appealing to the authority of a higher institution. Like, for instance, a police officer. Now, when they are a civilian, when they're off duty, they really don't have much authority. But when they're on duty and they have that badge, there is an authority that has been invested to them, in them, and they have the ability to make an arrest. But it's not really their authority, it's the authority of another. And so we can come to God with the authority of Jesus because of who He is, because of what He's accomplished, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We can come confidently and boldly in prayer because we're praying in His name based on His authority, on His accomplishments, His achievements. Amen? And so we are able to come to God not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. We're not able to come to God based on our own merit, but because Jesus, because of His merit. And that's what it is to come to God in Jesus' name. And because of all of that, and I'll close with this, we've been invited in. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus has gone to the Father on our behalf. He is our great intercessor. And because of what Christ has done, we've been invited right into God's presence, into his throne room. It's a throne room of grace. We can come in at any time, morning, day, or night, because we are his children. And we can come in to receive mercy and help in our time of need. Amen? So let us pray. Let's pray. We've been told, we've been promised that we can have usefulness before God, if we believe in Jesus, that we can pray and have confidence in our prayer and answered prayer because of Jesus, and it's based on who He is and what He has done, amen? And that's where our hope, that's where our confidence lies, amen? So on that note, let's pray. Father, we love You. We give You praise. We give You thanks, O God, for You are good. Lord, we need hope. We need help. We need strength. We need favor. And thank you that we have it in abundance. Our cups run over. You're such a good shepherd. Such a good shepherd, Lord. You lead us into green pastures by still waters. You protect us, Lord. You go with us down into the valley. Your rod, your staff, they comfort us. Surely, Lord, we will dwell in your house all the days of our lives. We worship you. You're holy. God, would you please build our confidence, strengthen our confidence and our hope in you. May we cling to the promises of God. And I thank you for these two promises right here. Greater works, greater works, and answered prayer. So, Father, I pray that those things will be true in our lives this very week that you would use us in the lives of others, that we would pray, God, for others, and that we would be effective in our prayers and effective in our love and our witness and our comfort to other people. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.